Welcome to Garden Views. Interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views. And this week we have with us Ethan Brown. He's the host and the founder of The Sweaty Penguin. So Ethan, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to talk today about something that a lot of people call the singular existential crisis facing the planet, humankind. Um, others say, nah, it's just part of the Earth's cycles and we don't understand things well enough to, to know the difference and stop fussing. We'll be fine. Um, so Ethan is here to... Uh, lend his expertise to the subject of, yes, you guessed, and if you didn't guess, I don't know how, climate change. So climate change, global warming, whatever you want to call it, um, we're going to hear from Ethan. And Ethan, you know, just give people the 401 on yourself and your show and your expertise. Sure. So like you said, I am the founder and host of The Sweaty Penguin. It is a comedy climate program presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise. And our goal is to make climate change less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. My background before that, I did a dual degree with film and television and environmental analysis and policy at Boston University, graduated a couple of years ago. And I also ran the used satire publication at The Bunyan for two years. Um, so that kind of gave my comedy experience. So. In early quarantine, I put those two interests together to create the Sweaty Penguin, and now we've been around for over three years, won awards, done over 200 episodes, and uh, it's it's been really great. All right, well, congratulations on all that. Now, do penguins sweat? So, we, <laughs> we actually did an episode on penguins, and I asked our interviewee, it, it took years to even ask the question, that they don't sweat, but they do have various mechanisms to cope with extreme heat because Antarctica is getting hit with more and more extreme heat today and so they'll uh, do various things like put their uh, their flippers up so that they're facing the air as opposed to the ground they'll try to um, kind of hold their wings out to kind of radiate heat off so they, they have some things like that that they'll do but um, sadly, sweating is not really Yeah, I don't think birds sweat, though. I, I guess I couldn't say that with any degree of certainty. Um, but I was just trying to break the ice, which is also part of Antarctica and, I guess, uh, part of our theme. So there's my uh, bad attempts at comedy. How's that? Perfect. Perfect. Perfectly bad. Perfectly wrong. All right. So tell us, um, I don't know, lead us from you know what got you interested in this and you know what you want to impart to the world. So when I first learned about climate change, maybe high school or so, I found it really scary, really overwhelming, but I wasn't finding it interesting. It wasn't something I wanted to learn about. And it really took until I just felt this was so important. I was going to school for film and TV and wanted to be a storyteller. And this was such an important story. So I forced myself to take an environmental elective. And that was where I learned that climate change is not just these doom and gloom headlines that we see. Climate change has a lot of nuance, there's a lot of critical thinking, there's a lot of solutions involved, there's a lot of progress that's already happened that we don't hear about enough, and 
learning all that, I felt as a storyteller that I wanted to get that message out there. I've always been capable both in the sense of making overwhelming things entertaining, that goes to my satire background and some other things, and I've also always been pretty good at communicating with people from different political perspectives. I find it interesting to learn about different political perspectives, so I think that serves me well in those conversations. So th that was what I brought to the table, and learning about climate change, I felt that I could use those skills and those interests to try to um, impart to others that there are solutions to these issues, there is progress happening, this is a serious problem and we need to take it seriously, but um, that, that doesn't mean that we should just pull up and feel like the world's going to end. We, we can actually get this done, and that's what I've tried to share with the world. Okay, well, let's first establish the problem and what the problem is. And while that sounds, you know, like it's almost self-evident in the topic, there's a lot of people and a lot of smart people say, hey, you know, it, it's, it's very conceited for the human race to think that, that we are doing, you know, we're influencing the entire ecosphere of the world, that there's been ice ages and warm ages and, uh, you know, and we're, we're technically still in, in the ice age and, you know, temperature shifts, the poles shift, the locations of the poles shift, the, uh, you know, the, the positive charge and the negative charge swift shift. You know, what we, we barely understand the earth and how it works. What makes us think that we understand this? Um, and so, you know, I guess you can tell us what is the status of, of scientific consensus and how do you convince those other folks that, um, that their positions are incorrect or that even if they are incorrect, uh, even if they are correct and, and it's not human made, that, that, that whatever's going on is natural, that it, it, the end result is the same to us and you know a, a lot of other other uh, neighbors on the planet meaning you know birds fish insects mammals etc yeah so like you say climate has changed all throughout history and to bigger extremes than this over much much longer periods of time mm -hmm. it's also true that if today's warming were natural it would still be a big problem and we would still need to figure out something to do about it but uh, today's warming is caused by human activity, and we know for a few reasons. We know because we can measure what the greenhouse effect is. Uh, this is a phenomenon where carbon dioxide and methane and a variety of other gases, when they are emitted into the atmosphere, they have an effect where they sort of create like a blanket over the planet. So this is why Venus is so hot too, right? There's a lot of greenhouse gases in that atmosphere, and it traps in all this heat. On Earth, we have carbon dioxide, which uh, sort of it has the one carbon atom and the two oxygen atoms, and when infrared radiation hits it, the carbon atom in the middle kind of wobbles, and then it hits into other carbon atoms, and when there's more of them, they pass this energy to each other, and basically it creates this, this warming effect by trapping that infrared radiation rather than reflecting it back into the atmosphere. Some of that is good. If we had none of that, human life not exist on Earth, but we're getting to a point where we're having too much of it, and it's due to the carbon dioxide and methane that humans are emitting primarily via fossil fuel combustion. So we can see solar, uh, I guess, solar power that comes off the sun has been 
steady since the 50s. Volcanic activity has been steady. Like, we, we know that this is the cause of this warning. We can see how much we've emitted. We can see the effect it's had. And all that math adds up. So that's that's really why we know that this is caused by human activity and primarily fossil fuel combustion. Um, and that's also why we know that we can do something to mitigate it and possibly even reverse it down the line. Okay. So what are the effects other than it's really, really hot sometimes, sometimes it's cold, there's, you know, hurricane seasons seem to be longer, the storms may or may not be more severe, but there seems to be longer uh, life cycles to the, se the season's period. Um, I heard something about the forest fires that, yes, there's forest fires that are they're, they're absolutely natural. In some cases, they're entirely wanted, but that uh, fire season started six weeks earlier and ends five weeks later, which is basically almost three full months, a whole you know extra season of fire season, which makes it seasons, um, you know, and, and all of these things. And, and it paints a pretty, a pretty bleary picture. And, you know, but still, you know, the, you know, uh, New Orleans hasn't flooded under, you know, Miami is still there. L Long Island is still above water. Manhattan, you know, is still there. So what, you know, what, what are the, what are the signs, you know, that, that we should be looking for? Um, you know, uh, what, where's the, the greatest danger? Yeah, there's a lot of answers to that question. And I'd encourage people to listen to the sweaty penguin because we try to cover these topics one by one. It's mm. impossible to cover in a couple minutes. But I think one exciting scientific development to help us understand this is something called attribution science, where now over the last five years or so, scientists can now figure out to what degree climate change made an individual weather event more likely. So we can see, for example, the extreme heat waves in July, I believe, were made three times more likely due to climate change, uh, human-caused climate change, that is. And um, there have been certain individual events in geographic areas that scientists have said would not even be possible without human-caused climate change contributing. Similarly, we can look to droughts, we can look to hurricanes and cyclones, we can look to uh, wildfires, like you say, they uh, are not caused by climate change, but once a fire gets started, the hotter and drier conditions that climate change creates can make them spread a lot more quickly. Um, so there's a lot of different weather events that get affected. Uh, sea level rise is another, which you mentioned, uh, that happens both due to thermal expansion, where the uh, molecules that are making up the water in the ocean expand and that leads the surface level to go up and also due to glacial melting sort of like dumping ice cubes in a proverbial glass of water raises the level as well um obviously that has not completely flooded miami or new york city or anything but it does mean that hurricanes intrude further inland which creates more damage it does affect a lot of coastal ecosystems like mangroves and salt marshes and seagrass, which by the way, also store a lot of carbon dioxide for us. So that's not great. So there are a lot of different things going on and they all kind of intertwine with each other. Um, but the bottom line is there's, there's a lot of reason to be concerned and um, the, the facts are definitely more than enough reason to want to tackle these issues. Did you ever uh, hear or watch a show called The Newsroom? It was on HBO. 
I've seen clips of it. I haven't watched okay. any full episodes, though. Yeah, it, it, I think it was on for about three seasons. Uh, it was a, uh, Jeff Daniels was the star. It was good. It was, I mean, it was an Aaron Sorkin thing with his typical Aaron Sorkin, you know, dialogue where everyone's really smart and everyone makes good points. Anyway, um, they had one episode where the guy who played Toby from The Office uh, was the EPA administrator, and he was being interviewed by Jeff Daniels um, or someone. And, and they said something like, you know, well, what are we going to do about climate change? And he said, oh, nothing. It's too late. It's It's been too late for 15 years. And he rattled off a whole bunch of statistics and whatever. And, and because Aaron Sorkin shows are always great and well-written and well-researched, that always left a scar in me it, it, to this day, you know, 15, 16 years later. Um, that that character with the script written for him that I knew as Toby from The Office, uh, playing the EPA administrator, was he right? Is he right? Uh, it, it, you know, is is there is it too late to do anything with that? And as a sort of side to that, a little footnote that is only a little bit related, this got extra scarring or reinforced when I listened to an episode of a podcast called The Gist, which isn't on anymore. Um, but when they did a, a study on recycling and said, yeah, it doesn't really do anything because most of the stuff you recycle can't be recycled anyway. Most of the stuff you put in there just breaks the machines. And and if you if you want to, you know, if you want to wash the the um, aluminum cans out and the plastic well enough to be recyclable, you're using hot water. And and then in all the trucks and the carbon footprint may actually be uh, larger. And really, all that you can recycle is you know without much cost is basically dry paper and cardboard yeah, and it's got to be flattened you have to break down all your boxes which nobody does um and so, the, so i was like okay well recycling's bullshit and toby just told me that the, the end is near 10 years earlier ethan tell me why is the end not why is the why is the end not here what what are the all the, the prophets in towns go the end is nigh the end is nigh what no. why is it not nigh <laughs> To, to quote the office, Toby is not a part of our family, and he's also divorced, so he's not a part of his family. Uh, um, do you, was he the uh, was he the Scranton Strangler? There's a theory that he actually. No, absolutely. Oh, okay. No question about it. All right, all right, okay. I'm well, we... a firm believer in that theory, but okay. see, folks, yeah. he's into conspiracy theories too, and he believes this Toby, Toby was the, the Scranton Strangler. So there you go. He's like he can't be all bad. All right. It's not a conspiracy if it's just obvious fact. But... Okay. Well done. Well done. Well played, old man. Yeah. All right. In, in terms of climate, the the reason that I, I take issue with the idea that it's too late or it ever could be too late is there's no one point at which our climate goes from habitable to human extinction in a snap. It is already here. We're already seeing certain impacts of climate change. Um, but as this gets worse, those impacts progressively get worse. But there's also not really a point at which it reaches human extinction. Like, we'll, we'll always find a way to hole up somewhere and survive if it ever came to that. So this is, this is a big spectrum. And with every tenth of a degree of warming that we avert, we save lives, we improve our economy, we protect health, we protect justice, we do a lot of things that are just important to human well-being. So there is a international goal uh, that was written into the Paris Agreement, but talked a lot about elsewhere, that we keep uh, 
global warming to under 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2100. Um, and that goal is still feasible. It is ambitious, but still feasible, especially um, given the long timeline that we have to get there. It's possible that we flip above it, but then pull it back down under by 2100. Uh, regardless, that's still attainable. And not only that, but it is economically beneficial to do that if you just compare the cost of a lot of technologies like solar and wind and forest management to the alternatives of uh, continued fossil fuel combustion and uh, forest catching on fire and what have you. Losing so, Manhattan. There's a cost incentive. There's a lot of social incentives where various goals related to um, human development and equity are improved based on doing these actions. So in that sense, not only do I think it's not too late, but I think every incentive is in our favor to actually take these actions. And furthermore, we already have been from uh, the United States. Our carbon emissions peaked here in about 2005 and to 2019, they dropped by about I believe 16% or so. And uh, they're set to continue to drop from there. Um, we can make that go quicker, but that's the trend that we're on. Uh, globally, emissions are set to peak in the next decade, which is great as well. So this is already a train that's moving. We can make it move faster, which is going to help a lot of people. But certainly that is, that's where the science is, and that's nowhere near saying the world is going to end. Okay. So what are, what are the steps that the world can make? How do you get the global south, which you know, is, is, has been, you know, there's exceptions to everything, but has been economically exploited over the last, you know, 200 years, maybe 500 years, uh, maybe longer, who knows, um, to get on board when, when they're already in the worst positions. How do you factor in for, you know, countries like India that, that, that are trying to sort of catch up to what they perceive as their competitors? And how do you, you know, deal with something where, you know, a war. Russia invades Ukraine. I mean, and, and there could be other wars. You know, I don't mean to pick on Russia at this particular moment, but, you know, what, you know, China invades Taiwan, the United States invades Canada, whatever. Uh, you know, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's always wars and they cause big booms with, you know, big things of smoke and big machines that belch smoke into the, into the sky. So anyway, what steps can countries make? What, what steps can be done to get the world on board? And then I, if we can, we'll try to talk about what, what can individuals do? Uh, and let's face it, without completely inconveniencing themselves because, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're sort of lazy. Yeah, it really depends country by country. In the, in the global south, there are some, for example, Vanuatu is a Pacific island that has been one of the leading voices at some of the UN climate conferences saying, our island may not exist if we don't take right. action on this. Um, even a country like India has seen a lot of impacts from worse and monsoon seasons and flooding and all that. They have, at the last UN climate conference, they put forth a proposal for the entire world to phase down all fossil fuels, which many um, European Union and the United States and a lot of other countries actually supported that. It ultimately didn't get in with uh, opposition from some of the suspects you might expect, like China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, but um, they certainly seem committed to this. So I think there's growing interest around the world in getting this done. I think there are some 
countries that will present challenges. Um, China is a good example, but even China has said globally they want to be carbon neutral by 2060. They're one of the leading countries in the world in terms of solar and EV manufacturing. Um, so different countries are, no one's perfect, but people are coming at this in their own ways. And really, we just need to get on the same page and uh, implement some of these uh, some of these goals. In terms of wars, I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a tricky one. And we did an episode on Russia's natural gas field, the uh, Bovenyankovo field, which is actually a lot of that gas money is what's funding the war. And uh, so that's a really intricate issue. But one potential, I don't want to say silver lining, one, one potential thing that could come for the climate out of it is the European countries are now very actively trying to transition away from Russian gas. And they are implementing some cleaner energy sources to do that. They're using more solar, more wind. Um, nuclear is a bit testy over there. It depends on what country you're in. But the, certainly there's been interest in aligning the incentive to transition from Russian gas with their, their climate incentives to provide energy. Uh, there's also been other natural gas coming in, so I don't want to say that's solving everything, but uh, that is one thing to note. Um, did you want me to get into individuals as well? Sure. Why not? Yeah. So, like you said, I, I think um, we don't want to inconvenience ourselves, and there's a, a limit to how much one person can do, but I do like to give uh, five pieces of advice to individuals who are interested in doing something. So number one is to find low hanging fruit. If there's anything that is very easy for you to do, for example, I am not a big fashion person, so I don't feel the need to go buy the new fast fashion trend every single week. That certainly lowers my carbon footprint. Uh, anything like that that you find that you can do and pat yourself on the back for, that's great. Um, but on the flip side, like I love meat, I could not give that up, and so I don't let myself feel too bad about that. And I can, can we back up to the fashion thing first? So, is the reduction of the carbon footprint simply the not going, the act of not going out and shopping, um, so that people, if they did online shopping, that that might do something, even though there's probably still delivery involved. Uh, or is it um, the act of the clothes themselves to actually produce a new shirt or new pair of pants requires a shocking amount of energy and water in particular uh, to actually create the materials. Um, polyester comes from plastic, uh, which ultimately comes from fossil fuels. Right. Uh, cotton requires a lot of water and energy and fertilizer to grow. So when uh, there are these flimsy clothing that get put out and it shrinks within two washes, it's an incredible waste of resources that um, if we could just get like a sturdier piece of clothing and wear it for a year as I prefer to do or even longer than that. that a year? Your carbon I th I'm pretty sure I've got clothes older than you, but anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but, but like... It's good to know, and it's good for you and I to know that we're having a positive impact by 
not buying a new thing every single week. But it's not to be not to be comical though. It, it's more about the reducing the the reduction of demand is the reduction of supply, which which will reduce the actual production of of those yes. goods. Okay. Exactly. Um, so yeah, there, there's there's a lot of stuff like that that we can do, and a lot that we likely are already doing. I mean, if we uh, use one degree less of air conditioning, we save energy and we save money, and so a lot of stuff like that. Well, you were on the meat thing, and I'm with you on that. I'm I'm not one that's about to give up meat. I'm a carnivore. Yeah, that's a tough one. I'm also allergic to peanuts and sensitive to other legumes, so it would be really hard for me to do a plant-based diet, even if I tried. Is a plant-based diet better for... I mean, I know that the, the animals take up a lot of carbon and then the whole industry does, but I mean... The plants also absorb the carbon, and you know they they you know photosynthesis and all of that. I mean, I mean you you you're cutting down the plants to to make the plant based food. I mean, I mean, there's got to be a cost to that as well. Yeah, it, it does. It, nothing has no carbon footprint, but um, in terms of lowering it, if uh, to actually raise and feed cattle or chickens or any livestock we also need plants to do that and it takes for a cow to grow one kilogram it can often take up to like six kilograms of feed for them to do that for a chicken it might be closer to two or even a little bit lower but there's this feed conversion ratio that's basically saying it takes two kilograms of corn to create one kilogram of chicken um and so in that sense kind of setting aside all the other uh cow farts and what have you that <laughs> principle there means that livestock are going to have a bigger carbon footprint than than plants that said we can't survive on a diet of all corn that would create a ton of issues so there are plant-based diets that people can and do survive on just fine and thrive on, um, but it's also it's also not for everybody. Okay, yeah. Um, I'm. Not, are are there any tips for somebody who's gonna you know be continue to be an omnivore uh, and what they can do to still do something? Yeah. So um, first off, on the on the food point, something I will try to do a little bit is. If I'm going to have a steak or a burger, like, get a good one. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to get a really crappy one. Um, but I, I think some of my other pieces of advice I like to give to people, um, first off, uh, try to do your research. Sometimes there are solutions that are kind of the trendy thing, but aren't actually all that effective. For example, a tote bag is also made out of cotton and it can take like well over 150 single-use plastic bags to make up for one tote bag so uh trendy things like that sometimes aren't all that they're hyped up to be um so knowing that and trying to do the right thing there i think uplifting others who do good things there's quite a lot of quite a lot of vegan bashing in the u.s and so that's another example where even if I can't do it, I'll always uplift people who do and encourage them. 
another is to just use your voice. So for me, that was starting the Sweaty Penguin and trying to write and put my ideas out there. For other people, that may be activism, that may be just in their home or their workplace. It, it can be whatever you want. For me, activism was never going to be my thing. I can't condense any of my nuanced thoughts onto a sign. And I also just, um, I'm not big about big crowded spaces of people shouting, but I think there are a lot of different ways that you can use your voice. And then lastly, what I always recommend, which um, is maybe a little controversial, but talk to someone you disagree with. It doesn't have to be about climate or politics. It can be sports or books or movies, but just getting more comfortable with those conversations, I think is really important um, to actually address these issues. We have to be on the same page. We have to, even if we're not best friends, we have to at least get along enough to talk to each other and not be in a bubble. So the more we can have those conversations, the better I think all of this becomes. Are you familiar with permaculture? With what? Permaculture. Um, it, it's a, it, I don't believe so, but I may be mixing it up with another thing. Okay. Um, I, listen, I don't know if you ever want to listen to this show or not, or but the, the, the feed that Garden Views is on is on the Garden of Doom feed. And it was a show I, I, a long time ago. I think, I think it's episode 46. Um, and that shows up to episode 180-something. Um, I think it's called Garden of Hope. Uh, and it was on permaculture with someone I went to high school with. And uh, she was studying permaculture. We talked about it. And she told me to watch this, this documentary on, I think it was on Netflix, and I did. Basically, what permaculture is, is constant crop rotation so that instead of just growing corn and whatever that you, you're growing crops and you're growing, you know, you're doing, you're using all acreage to grow all sorts of different things the way nature intended. You're also doing honey. The animals that are there, they're all free range. And so no one's saying, you know, you have to, you know, become a vegan or whatever, you know, but you're going to have, you know, the cows are going to be there and they're going to be dropping their dung and they're going to be eating, eating the, they're going to till the soil. They're going to be eating the grass. Everything's going to renew itself. You know, we started ruining the climate when we started using a plow and, and just, you know, using the same soil and using and using and basically we're killing the soil, you know, is what we're doing. So if we replace the soil, um, you know, through natural means that over seven years, you can improve the soil and actually the, the, the farms and the ranches, because they can be both uh, or a combination, they actually become a whole lot more profitable because they're not relying on any one thing. They're more drought proof. They're more uh, disease proof, but they also, they've got more goods to sell uh, constantly. Um, and uh, you know, the, you know the, the Department of Agriculture already subsidizes certain farms to grow certain things to not sell them, to not, you know, we, we grow corn and chickpeas and soybeans to, to, you know, and then like to not sell them, to just let them go somewhere. Or they go to feed to fatten up cows and chickens and things like that. They, they eat it, but that's not really what they would prefer to eat. So I don't know. It, um, I was hoping you would say yes, because I'm not the best person to speak on permaculture. No, it's I, been a I'm while. Oh, okay. Yes, it, that's a very, very effective solution. And honestly, I I try to give something for individuals because I know a lot of people want something to hang on to. But to me, I see the most 
exciting solutions as these bigger ideas that could transform these industries to not just help the climate and the environment, but actually perform better economically. And this is a prime example of that. Uh, corn, for example, is a crop that sucks a lot of nitrogen out of the soil. And there are other legumes that actually add nitrogen back to the soil. So to get these rotations can be really effective because nitrogen fertilizer for corn is actually a large source of greenhouse gas emissions. If you put on too much, some of the nitrogen goes into the air as nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas that's 300 times as powerful as carbon dioxide. Whereas if you can rotate it with a legume or some other plant that can restore that nitrogen, that that creates a big benefit. And then at the same time, again, like you said, we avoid a lot of disease, we avoid as much need for pesticides, and we create more products, which can lead to more money. So yeah, lot, lots of solutions like that. It and also seemed like it would save the, really gov the government, at least our, at least the United States government. I don't know what other governments are doing, but yeah, since they're already spending so much money on these, these subsidies and, you know, paying people for things that are just going to be discarded anyway, they could divert that money to subsidize the permaculture efforts so that those farms don't suffer over those seven years. And then presuming it's correct, you know, in seven years, they become, they become more profitable. Then you no longer have to do subsidies. Uh, you know, and you, that whole part of your budget, which was now is gone. It can, it can go to something else. Maybe it can go to subsidize, you know, our, our, our neighbors, you know, in, in the South to do, to do the same thing and help the global South next. And, you know, if it doesn't take seven years, if it takes nine years, so be it. But it, it, it seemed like seven years, if you stuck to it, was, was by year seven, you were, you were more profitable than before. So conceivably the subsidy, could could be reduced, uh, you know, at, at some tipping point. I, I don't know enough about it, but anyway, in the long run, the math actually would save money and would make money for the for the business for the, the farmer rancher. Yeah, I'm with you. It's important to get farmers input on this sort of thing because another piece is just uh, government intruding on their land and they want to do what they're doing. But uh, I know a lot of times it can even be private groups or public-private partnerships that can come into a farm and present these ideas and uh, get feedback. But I, I agree, if we can implement these sorts of solutions and save money for everybody and even down the line save taxpayer money, that's that's awesome. And if we're helping the climate at the same time, that's wins for everybody. Sure. And of course, it only wins where there's places where you can grow things and not every place in the, in the world is agrarian or agrarian enough. Um, what about the water? I mean, you know, I'm not sure if this is directly related to climate change or not, but whether there's climate change or not, whether one believes or not, the level of plastics and junk in the water is going up and up and up, and that's having an effect on sea life. Um, you know, there's certain fish that we can't eat anymore because the mercury levels are dangerous. Of course, where the mercury can come from, we, we put the mercury in there. Um, so even if you don't believe in climate change, there's some better environmental policies. I mean, it's the same environment. I mean, I think the environmental movement got off on the wrong foot when it really started in earnest in the 70s. And it was basically, you know, save the whale, save the animals, which is nice. Um, but it was the wrong message. The message was 
save us. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, there used to be woolly mammoths. Now there's not, but there, but there will be another elephant. The, the the earth will be just fine. But you know, you know, but your your grandkids won't. Your great grandkids, they, they won't be humans. Um, so I think the messaging started off on the wrong po foot. And the only point of that is that there's so many skeptics now, or so many people say, well. If it's too late, what can we do now? Um, or no matter what we do, we can't control what Brazil, China, India, Russia, the United States does. We can't control what what you know our our, our own government does. Um, how, how do you tell? How do you message this so people are like it's not hopeless? It's not we're not helpless, and it's not hopeless. Yeah, I think everyone wants clean air, clean water, and a healthy environment. I talk to people on both extremes of both sides of the aisle and have yet to find blowback on that basic thing. Um, so that's a great point to start to find common ground on. In terms of how to reach them, I find that a lot of people are coming from, whether it's climate doomers or climate deniers or people who are just different I find it's all rooted in a similar emotion of fear and anxiety and maybe even guilt in some cases where they just don't see a path forward it's too freaky and we're either gonna in some way we're gonna disengage whether we're gonna say oh we can't do anything or we're gonna deny it or what have you what I try to do at The Sweaty Penguin and through all my work really is go at that specific emotion. So find a smaller issue we can break down, talk about what's going on, and talk about all the different solutions that are out there to solve it and show how those solutions not just help the environment, but also help the economy, help our health, help justice, help security, help just human livelihood. When we do that and we kind of go one by one, I find that people are much more willing to engage. And then from there, we start to find solutions that we find common ground on very, very quickly. So that's that's been my approach, and I've found it to be very effective. On the point about kind of getting other countries on board, I, I understand that that's a concern. And we've even done episodes about international accountability and how to incentivize other countries. But the one thing I'll say, the, the, um, the permaculture is a perfect example of this. Many climate solutions actually save you money, improve the economy, and improve everything else. It's not a sacrifice to help the climate. It's often a positive thing. So if we in the United States are worried about other countries not doing climate solutions, we can do them and we can beat them and uh that just works out better for us i think ultimately getting everybody to do it is what's needed to help the climate but we shouldn't not do it because we're worried someone else won't because that's just putting us at a disadvantage in every other category what are some of the uh, maybe the top three to five recurring topics or themes that you keep encountering on the sweaty penguin and what are like the top three to five new things that never had occurred to you that you learned by doing the sweaty penguin? I think one topic that we've done several episodes on is carbon bombs. So these are fossil fuel projects that would 
emit 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide from start to finish. Uh, for context, in 2019, the entire world emitted 59 billion tons of CO2. So a billion on one project is a big deal. And there was an investigation from The Guardian in May of 2022 that found uh, there are currently 195 oil and gas carbon bombs in development or operation around the world that together would emit 646 billion tons of CO2 and blow past our international climate goal. Now, that freaked me out when I first heard it, and I can now put a little caveat on it to say this assumes that we actually extracted all of the oil and gas out of the ground at all of these locations, which just won't happen for economic reasons, forget climate policy. But these projects are a big concern. And so we've kind of been going one by one down this list. We've explored, I think, about a dozen of these projects so far. And we've found that they all have their own intricate issues, but they also have a variety of solutions that are really interesting that are both local, but could even apply more broadly. Um, we do a decent number of episodes on food. I, I try to do that because I know it's a thing that connects to people. I think I find that often the food conversation gets caught up in what food should we eat versus shouldn't we eat when I think the bigger conversation is how is climate change affecting food? How are droughts and wildfires and tropical storms actually affecting farmers, affecting crop yields and all of that stuff? So we've done a lot of really interesting episodes from chocolate to vanilla, wine, coffee, tea. Uh, there's a whole long list that I'd encourage people to look at. And then uh, what's, a, what's a good third? I, I think um, coastal ecosystems have been interesting. Uh, we've done various animals like sharks and whales. We've also done like salt marshes and mangroves and seagrass beds. And these ecosystems are absolutely incredible. They protect our coastlines from storm surges. They store huge amounts of carbon, even more so than most forests. And they provide amazing ecosystems for reefs, for various marine life. And I think that they can be a big player in how we both adapt to climate change and even mitigate it through through their carbon storage. Um, sorry, what was the second part of your question? Um, some things, some surprising things that you learned by doing uh, sweaty penguin that just stuck with you. Yeah. So one thing I learned, which is maybe a, a bit of good news, we when I learned about climate in school and. I'm not sure how widespread this misconception was, but there there was this idea of a carbon lag where basically, I explained before how carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. We emit it, it traps heat, and that warms the climate. There was a concern that once humans stop emitting carbon dioxide or we become carbon neutral in 30, however many years, the climate would continue to warm because all this carbon would still be there. It would take like a century for it to dissipate. And in that time, it would still be absorbing more solar radiation and trapping more heat. And there was a concern about both the impact of that, but also how do we as climate communicators say to people that we did all this work and now we're still going to be warming for the rest of our lifetimes. What has been recently uh, discovered by scientists that effect is real. 
but at the same time, our oceans and other ecosystems, but primarily the ocean, will be sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. And it does that already. It will continue to do that. But that process of sucking out carbon and trapping it in the ocean will offset that warming effect and essentially mean that once we stop emitting carbon dioxide, we will flatten the climate in a few years and we can actually get to work on trying to bend it back down and uh, bring things back to a more natural level. So that to me was really exciting because it puts a light at the end of the tunnel. We can see we have to do this, this, and this, and then we are there and this could even happen in our lifetime. And that, that got me really excited and motivated. I think, um, that was an important thing for us to share because again, the less we feel crippled with anxiety, the more that we can actually stay engaged and focus on the solutions and, and get stuff done. So um, I think there's a lot that I've learned that has made me more optimistic about our progress and about possible solutions, but that, that was a big scientific lesson that I learned uh, in the last couple of years. In your mind, where does nuclear fit into this? Because nuclear is a little bit scary. I mean, I grew up in New York where, you know, I remember as a kid, Three Mile Island. I remember the movie with Jack Lemmon and Jaden Fonda. You know, if I remember, I think, Fuji, Fujimara about 10 years ago, uh, earthquake and a ty typhoon or tsunami hit it, and uh, the Japanese were able to contain it. But, you know, of course, you know, in a few years, Godzilla is going to emerge because that's what's got to happen, right, after for that happened. Um, you know, there's... The war in Ukraine has made, you know, given the the world some scared, you know, uh, times when, uh, you know, the it seems like there might have been meltdowns. There haven't been. But of course, we I remember Chernobyl. Uh, anyone who doesn't remember Chernobyl um, probably saw the, the, the docuseries. I think it was on HBO as well. Anyway, what what's your position on nuclear? And if it's not so scary, how, how do you con convince people that it's not so scary? So we did have an episode on nuclear energy, which I learned a lot from. I think some of the big takeaways in terms of the disaster issue, it's not as pronounced as we might think. Obviously, Chernobyl was horrific, Fukushima as well, uh, through my line, which was not good. But first off, our facilities have become lot safer since the 70s and 80s and uh, secondly if we actually look at um, human deaths by like watt hour of energy from each different source nuclear is right there with solar and wind as the safest out there um, when you compare it against the amount of deaths in the coal mines or deaths uh, related to oil and gas so and that includes Chernobyl and Fukushima and all of these disasters. So those events are obviously going to be the most newsworthy, but they are few and far between. And given how technology has developed, we are likely to see far, far, far fewer of them, if any, in the future. Uh, the other issue that comes up a lot that is still an issue, but maybe not quite as big as I had realized, was nuclear waste. Um, the amount of nuclear waste that the United States has generated from the beginning of nuclear energy to today 
would actually fit on a football stadium about 10 feet deep, which is not as much as I would have thought. So there still is an issue in terms of where do we put that and we need to find a good spot for it, but it's not that much, uh, well, at least. It, well, it doesn't sound like that much until it's, yeah. you know, within 100 miles of where you live. And then it sounds like a lot. Yeah, um, uh, that is. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not even sure that it's feasible or safe to do it, but, you know, you shoot it into the sun. I mean, you know, <laughs> is that, yeah. that, that was more rhetorical. I don't expect you to actually have an answer for that. I, I don't even know if that's a good idea on, on any level. Um, but, uh, it's very dense and heavy. It just doesn't take up a lot of space. Um, what I think there, the real issues to me that, first off, that issue of just where do we put the waste, um, uranium mining has caused some issues. Um, in the past, it was done on Navajo land and led to a lot of issues with contamination and pollution there. Um, figuring out how do we do that sustainably, which is possible, but we, we need to do it that way. Um, and then I think related to safety with regard to like the Russian war in Ukraine, I think it's less about another Chernobyl and more about making sure that these reactors that supply vast amounts of energy for lots and lots of people aren't disrupted in uh, some sort of conflict like that. That's, that's been a big issue over there. Um, but ultimately, I think what nuclear presents that solar and wind don't is that uh, that base load where it can run at all times of day, we can fill any uh, peaks in our demand for electricity during uh, people come home at five o'clock after work, they're using a lot more electricity from five to nine. And at this point, the sun has set and so we're not getting new solar energy coming in. So there, there are reasons like that where nuclear could, could play a role. I, I don't think any energy source is perfect, but I certainly can see a scenario in which nuclear would be an appealing addition to the grid. Okay. Um, is there any question or point that I didn't ask the question or give you a chance to make the point that I should have or that you want to get out there? I think we've covered a lot. I, I will say, though, if uh, people are interested in learning more, do check us out at uh, The Sweaty Penguin on whatever podcast platform you want. We're also on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all of that. And if you want to support our show even further, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash The Sweaty Penguin. We've got merch, a lot of bonus content, um, and we also take questions from our listeners. Uh, if any of you have climate questions, we'll answer them on the show. So feel free to send those in. And if you're a patron, your question goes to the front of the line. So all the more incentive to do that. VIP treatment. All right. I was actually going to give you a chance to promote everything, but that's good. That means that, that, that uh, I asked everything or you had a chance to say everything that you wanted. So, okay. So the sweaty penguin, I, I so Apple, uh, Spotify, Spreaker, Podbean, the usual, all that good stuff. Easy to find. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Ethan. Everyone, this is Ethan Brown, and the show again is The Sweaty Penguin. Make sure to check it out while you subscribe and, uh, and maybe share with uh, your six degrees of separation. And while you're doing that, 
do that for our show as well. And you can give both of our shows a rating. I'm sure we would both love five stars. I'm sure we would love it if you would type out a few sentences and give a nice review. Um, and uh, again, let your six degrees of separation know because that's the way shows grow. Uh, and you know, you can decide whether you think that the garden shows or or the penguin are more important, or make or don't choose. Spread the words on both at the same time. You know, these are false choices in this world. Anyway, Ethan, thank you so much for giving us your time and your knowledge and uh, and uh, approaching climate change in a in a nonpartisan and a non-confrontational manner and trying to bridge all sorts of gaps. So um, I look forward to checking you out on the Sweaty Penguin. I appreciate you being on Garden Views. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It was a lot of fun. Do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. You say one love, one life, one life, one need, and one love. Get to share it.
one love. Oh, yeah.